Hello and welcome to another podcast with The Diplomat. I'm Luke Hunt and today I'm speaking with uh, Craig Skeen, an illustrious journalist uh, with a terrific history across Southeast Asia, originally from Australia. He's worked for Australian Associated Press, the Sydney Morning Herald and many, many others. Craig, welcome to the program. Thanks, Luke. Uh, you've been around, as I, as I mentioned, for a long time in Southeast Asia. What are the types of changes you've seen over the last 20, 30, 40 years, perhaps? Well, there's an old saying that the uh, more things change, the, the more they stay the same. But uh, a lot has changed. Uh, on one side and on the other, a lot of the lifestyles of ordinary people, particularly peasant people, peoples through um, Southeast Asia and the Pacific Island nations as well, um, have stayed mainly the same. Uh, Urban lifestyles have changed more than rural lifestyles. Right. And the countries you've covered more intensely, um, thinking uh, Thailand in particular, uh, Cambodia, and uh, also in the Pacific Islands. What are your favourites and do you think life has improved in recent times or is it politically things are not as good as they once were? Well, I've got a lot of favourites. I spent a long time in the Pacific Islands, uh, in Fiji, four years, Papua New Guinea for four years. I was based as a correspondent in Thailand for about the same period and I've spent a lot of time here and other Southeast Asian countries. They're all different. Um, that's one of the diversity in the region is as profound as the similarities. And um, Thailand's obviously a place I've spent a lot of time and um, I use that as a base to travel to other parts of the region. In terms of change, I think the economic development um, has been uh, great, but at the same time, it's often been at the cost of environmental damage to soils, uh, to air, and so on, uh, to waterways. These environmental changes uh, are still playing out, uh, and and they are deep and abiding. And of course, we're seeing that in particular in the Mekong River countries, uh, from China through Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam. And the future is pretty grim. Uh, Right now, the waters are at a record low with six months until the next rains are expected. How frustrating is it to be writing about the issues confronting the Mekong River over so many years and yet nobody seems to be listening? Yeah, well, on that one, I think one of the uh, uh, the key points is that there is a Mekong River Commission. Uh, China is an, an observer, but it's not directly a member. And China is the big player on the block these days in so many different ways, uh, including in relation to uh, water issues. And I think the geopolitics uh, of water, like the geopolitics of a lot of other things, is complicating the finding um, of solutions, which play all the way down from the upper reaches of the Mekong in China, right down to the tributaries of the Mekong um, in Vietnam. And it's leading to um, tensions between um, nations, as well as causing deep-seated problems for ordinary people, like fishermen um, in Cambodia, finding their catches uh, drastically uh, reduced with implications for um, food security. Right, and there's 70 million people in the Mekong Delta, and another big issue they're facing, particularly towns built along the banks, is that with all the dams, the silt is not being replaced. And as what water does come out rushes down, it's washing away the water banks. And we're seeing uh, great damage done to where people live and whether or not they can stay there in future is going to become another issue on top of whether or not they can sustain themselves from uh, a food perspective. That's exactly right. And where people lose 
food security in um, regional areas of nations, uh, they're often forced um, into the cities. We call it urban drift. Uh, and then you get complicated problems of um, overpopulations in Sydney, strained infrastructure and um, unemployment pools, uh, social instability. So uh, the implications go not just to um, uh, what people eat, uh, where they live, uh, but also to the fabric of societies. Right, and the populations of Phnom Penh, I think officially it's two million. The reality is it's five. And I was speaking with... uh, contacts I guess would be the right term in uh, Ho Chi Minh City the other day and they were saying that the official population there is 12 million but the real population is closer to 17 million and infrastructure pollution the urban lifestyle is starting to buckle and creak yeah it's true and coming back Vietnam's a slightly different uh, kettle of fish because they have a different type of relationship with China, which is now, the, of course, the big player on the block. Uh, Cambodia, um, its economy is becoming increasingly inter- intertwined with China. I'm not uh, anti-Chinese um, as such. Uh, Chinese uh, know-how and uh, capital uh, can bring positive development, but can also bring um, social strains, community strains. Uh, and that has implications for the future if it's not very carefully handled. Right, and there's this tendency to rush in where uh, the old line, angels fare to tread, and we've seen the Chinese arrive in vast numbers in Cambodia, and we've also seen them being pushed back home in vast numbers, particularly with the ban on online gambling, which goes back to the casinos opening up en masse in Sandalville, where the Chinese have... Uh, responsible for an enormous construction. I don't think anything quite like it has been seen before, perhaps with the reconstruction of uh, Shanghai about a decade ago. But um, the sheer numbers is overwhelming uh, the local population and we're seeing uh, resentment on the rise because of that. Yeah, there's all that. And the building collapse uh, fairly recently, uh, which many Cambodians lost their lives, hardened public opinion. So these things have to be uh, carefully uh, handled. And it requires regulation, uh, economic regulation, regulation of the building industry, uh, labour regulation um, and controls. If these things aren't properly handled, they produce social problems. And that one specific um, thing you've just touched on is that of gambling. Gambling is one of the great social problems um, of this region, right down to the village level. And gambling in itself, uh, along with alcohol problems and the increasing problems with drugs, notably methamphetamines, are all leading to um, some fraying of social um, social fabrics. Where would this end? In a best-case scenario, a worst-case scenario, will it end? Or uh, should we just expect that things are going to kind of meander along, rush along? What's your forecast for the next few years? I'm not sure whether we're talking about Cambodia here or the region. We can do wider, both. But, but in relation to both... Uh, We see uh, political strains um, in Thailand. We see political strains again emerging in Indonesia, uh, political tensions uh, again emerging in in, in Malaysia, in Myanmar. Ethnic issues abide. The Rohingya being a a, a classic example. In relation to drugs in the Philippines, uh, the so-called war on drugs has led to a deterioration of human rights with thousands of people murdered in cold blood in an attempt to stem the drug problem where wiser heads might suggest that less draconian methods uh, are need, 
needed to deal with some of these issues, whether it's substance abuse or whether it's uh, gambling addictions or, or whether it's uh, the problems coming from urban drift and urban living, that more rational, considered approaches are needed and that just plain law and order responses uh, are often insufficient. Right. While we're on the subject of the Philippines, there was uh, some positive news out there in the last couple of weeks, and that was that the Ampachuan clan were found guilty and sentenced to murder for the for the extraordinary massacre that uh, took place down in uh, Maguinda now. And I know you had quite a lot to do with the coverage of that story. Oh, it, it was shocking. I think it was 57 or 58, depending on um, the count, um, people died. About 30 of them were media practitioners. The circumstances were that a rival candidate for the governor of that Maguindanao region was going to register as a candidate. They were wiped out uh, in a gruesome uh, and violent way uh, and uh, disposed of in a, in a mass grave scraped out by earth-moving equipment in anticipation of the killings because a local warlord had developed a uh, in, had uh, prospered in a climate of immunity, uh, delivering political power uh, to people in Manila in return for being allowed to uh, run a private army. Now, this is not entirely new in Southeast Asia. We've seen private armies uh, becoming a plague in places like Myanmar, even in Indonesia, and other places where corruption leads to individuals becoming incredibly wealthy wealthy and powerful uh, and rising above the rule of law, often uh, at the expense of ordinary people. Right. Uh, The court case dragged on for a long, long time to the point where, uh, including ourselves, I mean, anybody who works in the media industry couldn't help but be extraordinarily upset by what had happened and the deep frustrations that followed with a court case that seemed to drag on there was uh that uh, there was a point there where andal senior and patchuan the head of the clan was uh basically living a life of luxury from a prison cell ordering pizzas women anything he really wanted but they finally the courts finally do seem to have done their job yeah i think that case even shocked um, hardened Filipinos used to um, a culture of, of violence. Uh, the details were, were shocking. Uh, pregnant women were killed. Women Machete. were raped. Uh, Machete, they were killed with swords. You know, it, it, it was just uh, abominable. The fact that at the end of the day, the, the, the senior member of the family, Adela Patuan Senior, did uh, did die without a verdict. But his son, who was the madman, uh, at the centre of the uh, uh, the slaughter was given a life sentence uh, along with others and hopefully that might signal some uh, progress in a return to law and order but the uh, on the other hand uh, the state has engaged in um, wholesale slaughter in the so-called war against drugs uh, initially very popular because drugs had reached epidemic uh, drug addiction and, uh, and drug trafficking had reached had reached epidemic proportions but the population became jaded uh, with that because they saw innocent people being uh, swept up. It was that fact more than the killing of drug, so-called drug, uh, uh, dr- drug lords uh, mm-hmm. per se. And the other thing was that it was mostly the small fry who were being killed, not the uh, top echelons who were able to buy their way out of trouble. So the Philippines has still got a lot of trouble with law and order issues, uh, with justice issues. 
the fact that the international community keeps watch on these things and can, to some extent, uh, embarrass these countries internationally is a good thing, in my opinion, because it maybe things would be worse if it wasn't for international uh, international pressure, um, even international organisations such as the United Nations uh, and human rights groups such as uh, Human Rights Watch, who do a great job uh, spotlighting um, these abuses in, in an attempt to, uh, uh, to at least um, stem abuses, if not uh, end them altogether. Right, and of course, in Malaysia a few weeks ago, we saw the Maria ex posto verdict where uh, she was a victim of an online scam. She unwittingly ferried drugs from uh, China on her, uh, to Australia, but en route in KL, she was caught. Uh, she was innocent, but there was a time when that type of innocence may not have emerged in court. And I think, thankfully, she was released and let go, but she still went through a five-year ordeal. Um, what I'm kind of getting at is that a lot of us can be highly critical of Southeast Asia and not without reason. But when we look at, say, the, the court results regarding now in the Philippines, the Exposto verdict in Malaysia, and we do have the generals in Myanmar on trial in the International Court of Justice, uh, for genocide, which might indicate that uh, at least something is being done. People are trying, and it's uh, perhaps not all doom and gloom. Yeah, I think I'd like to touch on two points there. Uh, firstly, in relation to the internet in the last two decades, it's right. given rise to uh, bad things such as fraud and voice over the internet protocols in which people's money is stolen and people are duped to run drugs and um, uh, all manner all manner of scams. Which is what happened with Exposto. Which is what happened with Exposto. And, uh, all, all manner of scams. But at the same token, the internet's given rise to social media as a way of networking um, people. Uh, it's given um, opportunities for improvements in healthcare delivery and uh, and so an economic new economic opportunities. So uh, a lot of these things are a mix of good and bad. And the more general point I just like to make as a correspondent who has been in the region for a long time is that the nature of the job tends to focus on the negative. Uh, I think sometimes we should pause and look at some of the positive things. Um, and among those, uh, the people of this region are generally friendly, open to outsiders uh, and um, uh, welcoming cultures. And I think and that gives rise to civil society, uh, to NGOs, local um, and foreign, who are trying to do the right thing, trying to improve things for ordinary people. And sometimes we should do credit, uh, give credit um, for some of the positive things that are happening in some of these societies. Right. And of course, with the internet, it's getting harder for governments to uh, keep a secret. It's getting harder for them to uh, deliver their message in the sense that uh, you can appeal to one part of the audience and insult another part of the audience and everyone's heard what they've said. How has uh, the digital era and the internet impacted on the way you do your job? And bearing in mind that Craig does everything. You've done a lot of video work, film, audio, and I think your main uh, raison d'etre is uh, writing. Just on those, on the, the earlier points 
uh, you made there about the internet. It's like it's like some of the other things we've been talking about. There's so many upsides and so many downsides in relation to media. The old media has been uh, to a great deal uh, supplanted um, by alternative new forms of media, whether it's Twitter or or, or Facebook or YouTube or TikTok uh, or whatever, uh, and people can get their messages out uh, directly. Sometimes it's unfiltered and there's a lack of checks, but the new media does op- offer opportunities for ordinary people uh, to be become informed or to know, learn about things. At the same time, it allows gives journalists new platforms. Um, it allows them to track breaking news. It allows them uh, to research without the help of a large media company, a newspaper or, or television station or whatever. It allows them to do their job uh, in different ways, but at the same time, uh, it, it has required reskilling uh, to a large degree because some of those old platforms ain't what they used to be, as right. they say. And another aspect is that while the government uh, has competition now in delivering messages, uh, with some of the more pernicious aspects of technology, there is potential to use the internet and other technologies to stymie freedom of speech and to monitor, uh, control and suppress dissent and opinion. So there's very much two sides to that coin. There's a good side and there's a a more worrying um, side in terms of states misusing uh, new technologies to control or limit information. Right. And we're seeing that in uh, Thailand, Cambodia, I think Indonesia, less so in Malaysia, but a lot of these countries uh, over the recent decades have been far more open to journalists, independent thinking, uh, political opposition, and we're watching that actually come, uh, it's been seriously compromised over recent years. Do you think this is just part of a cycle and things may well improve over the next five, ten years, or do we need to see changes in leadership? How important is the economy in these sorts of issues? It's uh, A lot of uh, politicians tend to crack the whip when the economy is heading south, mainly because they can't. if you can't guarantee a, a solid economy, it's difficult to win votes. Yeah, there are a lot of cycles, or you call it a seesaw or, or whatever, but let's take Thailand, for example, uh, where post-war you've had alternating democracies uh, and military-dominated governments or military uh, dictatorships uh, going back to people during World War II. And you've had periods when there's been relatively uh, free media environments and others where there's been been crackdowns. I suppose at the end of the day, it becomes a matter more for the citizens of these countries to insist on their rights to freedom of expression. That's the most important thing. They can be supported um, internationally, supported by NGOs, uh, supported in terms uh, of international opinion. But at the end of the day, uh, it's almost incumbent on ordinary people to say, hold on, we are insisting on our rights. And uh, hopefully uh, that happens uh, more rather than less. Traditionally, Political dissidents, pro-democracy groups, the more liberal side of civil society has been able to look to the West for support. 
that support seems to have been compromised over particularly the last 10, 15 years. And I firmly think that that's got more to do with trade deals and multilateralism. So you have Western countries who are doing these whopping trade deals, say Australia selling natural gas or coal to China. And nobody wants to criticise too loudly because uh, much of their economies now depends on money coming from countries where governments not all shape up to the Western parameters that they would like to see carried out in other countries. Yeah, I think that's true. And let's, um, let's call a spade a spade. The big player on the block is now China. It's not a bastion of democracy. The Americans' uh, influence uh, has declined somewhat. Even the Americans are pre, uh, preoccupied uh, with trade and other relations with China. So geopolitics does impact on how the international community, and particularly specific governments, view regimes, even if they're not democratic, if they're convenient, they'll sometimes be supported at the expense of principle. Right. Just to throw in a slightly curlier one. I think the United Nations has been rather quiet in recent years, particularly with the appointment of a a new chief. Has the role of the UN diminished? Has its need diminished? If you go back, say, 20 years ago, it was quite active in third world countries and resolving conflicts. People would wait with abated breath for its reports on whether countries are doing well or not doing well. These days it seems to have gone very quiet. Do you think uh, there is a greater role for the UN to play in regional politics or is it, uh, or is it just time for it to butt out? Well, of course, here in Cambodia, it did play a significant role during the UNTAC period uh, uh, in an attempt to usher in democracy right. um, after the shocking um, uh, rule of the uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge in the second part of the 1970s. Even that was efforts to deal with the situation here in Cambodia, other problems in Africa, in, in many developing countries, was always um, hamstrung to some extent uh, by the veto in the Security Council and the relationships particularly uh, involving the United States, Russia and China in the Cold War. And nothing has really changed that much um, since. The Cold War has ended, but those big rivalries Mm -hmm. at the top restrict the ability of the United Nations to solve problems because vetoes, the veto still exists. There are now strained relations between the United States and China. There's some rapprochement between China and Russia. There are some positive things happening. Um, the individual organisations within the UN, such as UNHCR, still try to do their best uh, to deal with the massive refugee movements, not just yeah. from this part of the world, but from Africa into Europe, from the Middle East into Europe. We've now got big refugee movements in, in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So th- these are huge, um, huge issues. Uh, it, to some extent, the refugee issues are less hamstrung these days by some of that big power rivalry. Everyone recognises there's a problem, and I think there's some positive things happening, even though right. the, the, numbers are, the numbers are massive. Uh, the, other UN organisations... Their, their record is mixed, but I'm one of the people that still believe we need an organisation like the United Nations and we'd be worse off without it. And of course, one of the greatest issues confronting Southeast Asia, say, 20, 30 years ago, was the extent of deep poverty uh, right across the region. Now, a lot of that has been addressed. Poverty, deep poverty still exists, but not 
at the same level. Meanwhile, there has been a rise in the mercantile classes, the urbanisation. A lot of people now have a route out of poverty. But at the same time, at the higher end, some people have amassed enormous wealth. And there is this tremendous wealth gap now that never existed before between the extremely rich and the very poor. Is that likely to continue or what are the potential ramifications of that over the coming years? In many places, the evidence is that the wealth gap is growing rather than shrinking in terms of, uh, if you count the number of billionaires and the amount of percentage of GDP uh, they account for compared to the people right at the bottom, uh, it's actually growing. The middle class in many of these countries is also growing, which is not a, ba- not a bad thing. But the people right at the bottom of the heap um, uh, uh, arguably uh, often miss out. Uh, some countries have uh, safety valves. So in the case of the Philippines, some 10% of their adult population have actually left to work in other countries, whether it's right. the Middle East uh, or Europe. And that's increasingly but, happening in Cambodia and uh, other Indonesia, Bangladesh. Yes, this labour mobility uh, is, uh, uh, is 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 quite profound. Uh, many families, uh, one or both parents, uh, are working overseas, and grandparents and aunts and uncles in the villages are looking after the uh, the children simply because they have to cross borders in order to um, earn, earn a livelihood. The Philippines it helps, and a lot of Filipinos speak English. Now we've got the event of. Uh, borders uh, becoming uh, uh, more open within the Association of Southeast Asian Countries, which offers potential uh, for young people uh, to learn English, which is the new lingua franca of of the region, and to develop uh, careers uh, in some of the more developed uh, Southeast Asian economies, such as uh, Singapore. Uh, and so on. Thailand is now becoming a more more developed country. So I think labour mobility on the whole, um, it requires regulation because there's also problems of exploitation and and, um, human uh, human trafficking and so on, which these are are bugbears uh, in the system. But there's also potential for people to climb out of poverty uh, by getting an education and... um, uh, having greater mobility. So like all these things, there's a good upside and a downside. But on the whole, there is potential, I think, uh, positive potential in the region for greater upward mobility, particularly from the lower middle class, the upper middle class. I think the problem is to help the people at the bottom uh, share some of the cake. Uh, and even on that score, new technologies are going to impact uh, profoundly. These nations aren't uh, immune from the ramifications of things like artificial intelligence uh, and robotics. Uh, in a country like Cambodia, where a large percentage of the workforce force are involved in the in the garment trade, uh, maybe the big issue in the future won't be access to European markets and um, uh, uh, or the North American market and the potential for sanctions. It will be that people who perform those sorts of jobs will be replaced by machines. And I think we're seeing that happening increasingly. Uh, Sanctions on Cambodia uh, from the Americans and the removal of trade preferences under the Everything But Arms, which follows uh, last year's election, uh, the 2018 election, 
which were where the opposition was banned and the election widely discredited. It seems to be um, this sort of this further push towards authoritarianism that we're seeing across the region, which is not welcome, certainly not welcomed in the West, and that in itself is going to have a major impact on the economies, which are not looking too healthy at the moment. Yes, and on that front, I think um, a little bit of pressure needs to be kept on China because China wants friendly governments um, around the region, and increasingly uh, they're. Um able to export technologies along the one belt, one road, which are aimed at keeping regimes in power that are considered friendly by Beijing. So ordinary people or the civil society need to uh, be aware, increasingly aware of this, uh, aware of the danger and insisting on their rights, uh, rights to privacy and so on. There's no shortage of potential sources for conflict. Uh, lack of water, the drying up of the Mekong, the banning of political opposition parties, uh, sanctions, and not certainly not just in Cambodia, but again in Myanmar, uh, where the genocide trial is being prosecuted in uh, the International Court of Justice. Uh, you'll have no shortage of material to work with over the coming months and years. Uh, what, what are your plans for the immediate future? Well, I'm sort of semi-retired now. I'm in my 60s. Um, I'm getting into photography and uh, filmmaking and documentary making interests me. I think uh, there's no shortage of opportunities to um, uh, take an interest in, in, in the society around you and to uh, express yourself and to some extent, to mentor others as you as you get older. Uh, maybe it's time to step aside a little bit, but there's no reason why you can't encourage younger people to develop media careers, to explore new options. And on that note, Craig Skeen, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Luke. I enjoyed it.